0: 18+. Block Talk Radio Let
1: me introduce Well, Block Talk listeners, it's Sunday, December 8th, here in Boston, and they're getting live play. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The Patriots have just recovered the ball (laughs) with a minute or so left down in the Browns territory. They're coming back. First time they've recovered an onside kick. Oh, my. <laughs> well, we got a barn burner here, folks. we got a barn burner. <laughs> and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Brian. Here he should be there. There he is. Okay. <laughs> no, we haven't got Brian yet. I don't blame him. I wouldn't call in <laughs> with this insanity. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, it's a. Uh, Chris, getting down to Christmas here? Patriots have had an amazing, <laughs> amazing season. And it uh, uh, looked like it was long down. So, hey, why don't we just... <laughs> Excuse my excitement. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The magic of the Patriots. My father calling in. You know, th- what happened? I, I shut it off. <laughs> <laughs> you know. He's going to hurt yourself. He's laughing from- so <laughs> much. <laughs> <laughs> That's not me. He, he, he's in stitches out there. He, he, he's going to be sick over it. <laughs> 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 all I got to do now is All I got to do now is win. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they did enough, Tommy. They won a game. Really, they really won it. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look at the ball like, hey, pass. at that that's a shame. <laughs> I'm gonna hang up with a <laughs> Okay, I'll talk to you. <laughs> that that was my dad. That was my dad. And. uh, <laughs> he is such a, a pessimist about ball and doesn't like Belichick and thinks every single sporting event is an absolute fix. Uh, <laughs> I, we think we've kind of cured him of that. But uh, I'm just going to do a little more play-by-one minute left. Patriots on. It's confirmed. Patriots have the ball. <laughs> what drama! <laughs> Anybody with cardiac problems? Oh my God! If, if they win this, if they win this, it's going to be insane in Boston. Oh boy, oh boy. Well, here's Brian. Let's uh, let's bring him in here. <laughs> hey, Brian, are you there?
0: <laughs> I I am right here. How you doing?
1: I hope you're in front of a TV. <laughs>
0: I'm sitting, actually, in front of uh, a computer screen right now watching the GameCast, so...
1: <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. I'm, I'm, there I'm... it is. There it is, first down. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is absolutely uh, phenomenal. I mean, if they do this, we're looking at another <laughs> another major, crazy milestone in Boston sports history. Oh, here we goes. There's the launch. Oh, almost. And it's, it's flag. <laughs> A live stream?
0: No, I'm just sitting in front of like a, um, um, what just happened?
1: A, a, a pass interference, total okay. pass interference, total pass interference all over them, and so now they're going to give them what, right down to the, oh, how oh, 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 sweet, how <laughs> sweet, um, yeah, this is this is the first time the listeners are going to get a play-by-play. I'm so glad we're recording this because I want to be listening to myself a couple of years from now over this one. 35 seconds left. They're on like, let me see, he was right in the end zone. So I think, what, they give him half half the pedal, half the distance? Yeah. Yeah, he was, if he hadn't been holding him, Boyd would have caught the ball. He's all, 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 oh, my God, it's so so egregious. So let's see here. We're down. They got. Oh my! Oh, they they're just. Oh my God! They're look like at the three yard line. Unbelievable. First and goal on the three yard line with 35 seconds left. Just all I gotta do is go over and the game's over. <laughs> what? Oh my God! Uh, are you a fan of both sports or just basketball? Oh
0: no, I'm absolutely a sports fan for the Patriots. For oh, my, sure. oh my god. I mean, I'm, is... I'm not like a guy I fan, a... but I definitely check the scores every weekend for sure.
1: Yeah. What about uh what about being a fan in Boston? <laughs> I mean it's been a,
0: it, it's, yeah, the past ten years have been pretty remarkable for every sport in Boston, so it's it's, it's Un- definitely been unbelievable. Title Town.
1: Yeah. Absolute amazing. title town. Well they're right down right down with about three yards to when they got four <laughs> for uh chances to do it. So, let's see what happens here. T- Brady is just a, an an absolute uh, you know, with your playing sports, I mean, do you do you admire his leadership abilities?
0: Oh, he's he is you know, just just in terms of leadership and in terms of what what I like about him most is that, you know, he he really uses his past it is. experience. They won.
1: They, they won. they won. They won yeah <laughs> They won. Yeah. <laughs> they won. They won. <laughs> It's impossible Day <laughs> one. oh my God, this is like can you have a freaking town? <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but it's, it's, It is absolutely incredible. Oh, Yeah, I'm sorry.' you he's saying about his leadership ability.
0: No, I mean, no, this, it is pretty amazing. I just saw that. But I, I think what's, what's amazing, at least for me, watching him and, and seeing, seeing how he plays, especially when he's down, I mean, it's, he, he really uses his past experiences to, to, to know that anything's possible in a game. You know what I mean? And I think just his ability to do that translates into the other players on his team. And, I mean, the guy is just, he has ice in his veins. You know, he, he's, he's kind of like Montana when I was a kid. You know what I mean? He just has absolute ice in his veins. And and it's, it's it's truly amazing to watch them.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, there's somebody who, I mean, I don't know when you started studying Eastern religions, I mean, or what even brought you to that point, and we want to get to the movie as soon as we can here. But, uh, I mean, Eastern religions are all about mastery.
0: Yes, yes. I would say, um, and, well, I, I think Western religion is about mastery, too, but I would say the the Western version is more about external and, and mental processes versus the physical. And I think that you find, you know, and that's not entirely true because I think in Greece, you know, pre-Christianity, there was a, a very much co- uh, correlation between physical mastery and, and spiritual mastery, you could say, if you want to use that word. But I Absolutely. think, um, you know, for instance, Hatha Yoga is a is a process of gaining control over the, you know, autonomic nervous system and just this idea that anything that can be brought to awareness can be mastered. And I think we've lost that definitely in um, the Western traditions of sport and, and um, you know, the interaction of the physical, you know, and I think that in the East, it's, you know, you see the martial arts, you see it certainly in yoga, um, the various yogas, that there is a direct connection between master the body, master the mind, where I think um, in the West, it's more of, there is mastery of the mind, but it's much more so of mastery over nature. It's mastery over the external environment, um, more so of the in- internal and the processes of the body that you find in India.
1: Absolutely. There's, you know, that's the first thing that I was... I had studied Western religions and Western philosophy, um, and it was only by a crazy... Um, just a a, a random dialing through am or fm radio i forget what it was at the time and i found alan watts and it was the first time i have he started off i'll never forget the first words that i heard he says who do you think you are and i'm listening Who's Hmm. this guy this great british accent and uh who do you think you are you know he says uh where do you begin and where do you end and uh and I'm like, what's he talking about? He says, do you begin, he says, do you, <laughs> do you end at your fingertips? He says, where do you end? And I'm like, you know, still going with it. And then he says, let me ask you a question. He says, how long could you exist without water? You know, and if the sun decided to drop from the sky, you know, and shine no more, how long would you, uh, would you exist? And, uh, you know, all of a sudden it hit me, you know, this. I because mean, he's just speaking truth. And then, and then his whole thing is he was totally independent with nature and obviously totally independ- uh, interdependent with, with spirit as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, and,
0: was a fascinating, he, he was a fascinating character. He actually lived and taught at a place where I lived myself, the Esalen Institute out in Big Sur. And there's a, mm-hmm. there's a room named after him. And, you know, he was definitely um, one of the great Zen. You know, that was a tradition he was part of. But he was definitely one of the great Zen masters, both in practice and intellectually, but you know, to be honest with you, Watts, Watts had a lot of problems himself. He, he was a severe alcoholic, and and you know, so it, it is interesting how even great teachers like Watts, and he was one of the great teachers, they're also suspect to you know just regular human, you know, follies. You could say, you know what I mean? Well, that was so I, I, I always, was great. you know, his his, uh, his his videos are on YouTube, and, and and they're really amazing. You know, the lectures he had such a a powerful presence and a a beautiful voice, like you mentioned. He had a very unique voice, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly, and And, and he he spoke like a poet, you know, even with the most mundane of things. And, and, you Mm -hmm. know, that's one of the things that I loved about him is he says, you know, you go to study with the holy man, and after years of studying with the holy man, you wake up one day and you're in India, and you find out that the holy man has had a girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he says, and you're shocked. And he says yeah. When well, you really have no reason to be shocked, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, so, oh, uh, well, this is getting interesting. We've got eight seconds, and they're down about the forty. Uh, oh wait a minute, it's going down to three, two, one. Well, they spiked it. Oh boy, here we go. We got a potential field goal. Oh boy. So we thought it was over. Who knows? Well, I tell you, if the Browns win it. <laughs> they deserve it. <laughs> Incredible. So, uh, yeah, well, you know, and what kind? Of, let's bring it back to the movie. What, what did you see in terms of the mastery that was certainly on the, you know, and I, I want to get this point in. Americans think, oh, you get a master's degree after four years of college and two years of postgraduate, you know, a master. You know, and everybody mm-hmm. who knows anything, you know, talks about mastery takes – you know, decades of, of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, um, no good. Oh my God. They won. <laughs> they won. <laughs> oh my God. Talk about drama. <laughs> there you go. And there's Belichick acting like, of course. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, I mean, so what did you see in, in the, I mean, these kids when would they start playing ball in three, four, five,
0: you know, I mean, I'm imagining probably the same as, you know, ki- you know f- I think basketball, you start playing, well, you start fooling with the ball when you're real little, and you, you know, I think maybe first grade, you're, you're, you're at the age where you can maybe get it up to a 10-foot hoop second grade, but I think that's like the, kind of the standard age when kids start playing basketball, um, but that's just a guess, though. You know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I would think that, you know, fooling around with the ball and then start playing some organized basketball by, you know, second, third grade.
1: Right, and I think that, you know, one of the things you talked about, you, you played right through the winter, and that's the, um, you know, that's the deal, is that it's that constant, constant, constant attention to the sport and keeping your focus, you know, going uh, one day at a time, every single day, and honing that. And, um, you know, I, be- I didn't become a magician until late in my life, and I, you know, um, Doug Henning was big at the time, and so was David Copperfield. And Doug Henning had this great expression, and I think this will apply to your your uh, your, your film. He would say that the impossible becomes difficult, and the difficult becomes uh, routine, and the routine becomes easy, and, yeah. and the easy uh, becomes beautiful. Yeah, and, yeah. And you know, I, I totally found that through the process, and you probably... Felt the same way that after a while, that all of the essential things like dribbling and you know passing and all became automatic. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's what it is too. And I think that would be you know magic or basketball or playing chess or anything at all. Um, the more you do it, the, the conscious processes, the things you think about, become unconscious.
1: Or they that's, become that's right.
0: language you want to use. Or they become super conscious. Whatever the the, the direction you want right. to go. But the bottom line it, is they become automatic processes where you're not thinking about it. You're in a kind of a, a flow and they kind of like the, the repetition that you practice so many times to develop, you know, the neuromuscular coordination, the the interaction of, of your visual field and, and, and various other processes of the body and the, the mind-body complex. They don't become conscious like, okay, now I'm dribbling with my left hand. They become automatic. They become you know, unconscious or or super conscious, whatever word you want to use, but they don't become part of, and I think any great artist or any great athlete or any great, um, you know, and even, you know, for me myself, you know, I mean, as I make this first film, I mean, this is, you know, I'm I'm going to be directing hopefully a lot of films in my life, and, and, you know, this is what I want to do. So I find myself constantly reading, constantly in front of the computer, constantly flying around with the camera, just trying to really catch up on, you know, I'm in my early 30s now, so I'm trying to catch up here. So, you know, there, there's that there's that Gladwell rule. I know we talked about Gladwell last time. You know, once you do 10,000 hours of something, you become right. you know a master, sort of uh, so to speak, a highly proficient in it. And you know, that's kind of that's kind of um, where I'm going with this in terms of in terms of what I do, what I want to do, and with 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 uh, filmmaking and art. But um, but yeah, in terms of the guy from Mission Hill, I mean. They didn't really have anything else you know what I mean by by right. the early 70s by the mid 70s Mission Hill had become essentially a third world country it become a war zone yep. totally isolated yep. from uh, re- totally isolated from the city of Boston and from certainly from you know suburban life that's for sure and I yep. think basketball became um, as a result of that you know? and I think yep. Basketball it came there for a few reasons. Number one, like we said last time, because of the economic reason, that basketball is by far the cheapest sport that anyone can play. Uh, number two would be just the ability, like the self-organizational principles of basketball. You can shoot outside by yourself. You can go inside in the wintertime. You can play two-on-two, two, 3 and 3 It just allows. And, and I think the, the other thing, too, which I haven't heard anyone, this was, was my own kind of analysis, is that basketball allows for, more injection of creativity than other sports. The only other sport I would compare it to would be soccer, but certainly, mm-hmm. um, certainly, the creativity in basketball is way higher than something like baseball or football or, or the more regimented sports. Um, the more equipment. Right. You, the I, I think it exists in camp. hockey
1: as well because,
0: you know, I, the ability. When so you too. think
1: of somebody like Gretzky, you know, it I doesn't happen is. all the time. But when you get, no, no, you, know, no, or, no, or, you know, that master true. comes along. Every once in a while, absolutely. it does things that nobody ever saw before. You know.
0: Yeah, and and there's like that in baseball too. And, and but I, I would say basketball is a, a much easier sport to play than hockey. Hockey. Does, oh, absolutely. You no, know, you you know what I mean? It's, it doesn't have that. You can't. I mean, I guess you technically could go outside and just kind of pull around with a with a, um, with a stick and a ball. But even that, you know, right. I, I, you're not with the puck. So I mean, there's basketball. does have advantages.
1: You're right, you're right. It's very expensive. You only get the limited ice time, et cetera. Exactly. You're absolutely right yeah. so, so so did you um so again with oh I want to talk about you you made a great point i had it had slipped my mind i was a i i my master's degree came in economics, and I was right at the time I was studying in the uh late sixties early seventies, and you're absolutely right. I forgot about that that my my uh, focus was, um, you know, in my major within economics was economic development. I was always obsessed with, uh, you know, with poverty. I mean, have, living in a poor place, seeing poverty, um, you know, all my life, you know, we, worked, we were relatively rich. The other kids around, the, the, their families didn't have cars or whatever. We had bicycles, things like that. And we always ate. And, you know, other people, if the only times they would eat was when some charity would deliver food to the Mm -hmm. door. Mm -hmm. So I was always drawn to a a mission in life at that point to overcome economic uh, deprivation. And Mm -hmm. I remember coming out of school and still not having uh, an idea of where and what I was going to use with So uh, a good friend of mine set me up with a bunch of interviews with not only economists at Harvard but also uh, a lot of guys from the business school. And I remember one, (laughs) this is a great uh, this is a great uh, input to this conversation. I get in one of this really sharp. I'll never forget him, and he was so great to have give, you know, taken time out of his life to steer a young guy trying to get some direction. And I said, uh, "Yeah, I says, well, I'm kind of confused as where to go and what to do with this." And he looked at me, and it, it was the best advice. I mean, it's never changed from what he said that day. He says, "Do what you like," <laughs> and you know, for the first time in my life. I had never heard anyone ever say that before, because mm-hmm. it was always go get this job or go get that job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. I asked him. I said, "I really do want to apply what I've learned." And I said, "But I'd like to do it more in the inner city." And I said, "What do you think about developing the inner city?" He said, "Give people cars. <laughs> give them cars and give them jobs." He says, "There's the answer. Yeah. You don't have to start pumping all kinds of infrastructure into the inner city to get." People are doing and it just made so it was so simple that that it was brilliant
0: well but, you know it's funny you you just said something really interesting too, because I think that <laughs> advice of um of what the you know for my generation for someone to say do what you like that's that's what we have have always heard you know what I mean we yep. never heard anything yep. else where your generation you didn't hear that you said go the job, get the house you know so. Never. I think that, that mindset has a lot to do with what happened in Mission Hill because part of the reason why the city emptied out in the 60s and the 70s was for that exact reason. You know, people didn't yep. think, do what you like. They thought, go get the house in the suburbs and move yep. out. And yep. when that mindset was such a dominant um, way of, of viewing the world, right, which, I mean, you know, your parents were in the Depression, and that's kind of what they instilled in you guys, and then you guys yep. instilled in, in us, the next generation – um, different values, you know? But I yep. think that, um, that the, the, the turnaround of the city, which we are in the process of, you know, it's basically happened, but it's going to happen at a much more acute level. Um, this concept of do what you like, do, you know, follow your, your, your you know, kind of like this. And, it, and it's really, to me, like a, a, a banality of, you know, Joseph's, like the Joseph Campbell line, follow your bliss, yep. um, which is kind of widespread, because, you know, people do that, but they end up working in these kind of big corporate jobs, and it's, 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 it's disasters in many ways for um, finding some kind of authentic life and, and living some kind of, you know, uh, purpose. But um, it, it is interesting about the development of the city because when you look at, you know, you grew up in Roxbury in, in Dudley Square, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so when you, when you look at that situation, I mean, your family – Probably couldn't, you know, based upon the the, the economic conditions that you guys lived in, even with inflation to where it is today, you guys have a very hard time living in in the city. You know what I mean? It's it's a total reversal of what it was. You know, the city was a place for poor people, for working people, um, for people who didn't have the resources to move outward. And now you're finding the exact opposite. You're finding the center of the city is... The, the is the ultimate point of privilege and the inner yep. city has moved to concentric rings surrounding, let's say Boston, you know, and right. what you're you're going to find in 30 or 40 years, ghettos will be set up around Boston and yep. places like Roxbury and places like even places like Dorchester will be very exclusive neighborhoods. This, this is going to take a little while because even Dorchester now is some rough parts but, you know, I would say in 30 years, 40 years, the whole city, right, and even, like, the closest parts of the city will be points of privilege, will be points of exclusivity, and you'll find on the outskirts, you'll find ghettos, essentially, you know, suburban ghettos. And this is – we're in the early stages of this. We really haven't seen that developed to the full. But um, this is precisely why a place like Mission Hill – Basketball really doesn't exist there anymore. There's no longer the basketball culture that produced so many great players oh, back in yeah. the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, it's not necessarily because there aren't good basketball players. It beca- it's because the cultural and social conditions and economic conditions are drastically different.
1: So wow. do if, if you make I this point written, in the movie? Know, you, you must make this point in the movie, right? Yeah, tor-
0: towards the end, we get into the current conditions of Mission Hill. But, I mean, if I were, let's say, Rick Pitino, or if I were John Calipari, or if I were Mike Sheshewsky, I mean, I would be creating a whole new recruiting model, you know, because the recruiting model, a lot of the times, and, and even now, I mean, you find this kind of trailing off. I mean, you know, you look at McDonald's All-Americans, and I actually ran these statistics. You look at McDonald's All-Americans, in the 1980s and 90s, the overwhelming majority, and when I say McDonald's All-Americans, I'm talking about the best players in, in the country in high school, were city kids, city kids. Yep. New York City, they were from Philadelphia, right. they were from Boston, they were from Chicago, they were from L.A. I mean, you look at now, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about kids from like rural Texas, Tennessee, Kentucky, I mean, places that were the, the minority in the 70s. I mean, you might get a great kid from you know, Texas or, you know, whatever. You know, it was mostly city kids, where now it's the exact opposite. I think there was one kid from New York City in the McDonald's All-American game last year, which is amazing. I mean, amazing. Think about it, you know? And this is a reflection, not of basketball. This has nothing to do with basketball talent. This has to do with the socioeconomic conditions that the American city is now going through. And I think Mm -hmm. that, to me is problematic for numerous reasons. Um, number one, cause I'm a basketball fan, but I think even much on a much deeper level than that, because it's changing what the city has traditionally meant for people and it's changing. And you know, it doesn't change. I mean, you know, poor people, poor people are poor people, you know, and at first we, we threw them into the middle of the city left them there. And now we're pushing them out to the edge, which may in fact be worse because at least when they were in the middle of the city, they had public transportation, they had hospitals, they had schools, you know what I mean? So now you push them exactly. up 30 miles in the city, and what do they have now? They have nothing, you know what I mean? So I it's think right. that um, the, 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 the techniques of capital, the techniques of discrimination, the techniques of, of alienation are way more advanced now in 2013 with, you know, an electronic economy and, and how we operate as humans than they were in the 60s and the 70s, you know? Um, So I think that, and also too, I I would say, um, if I was to give a a broader analysis of the whole situation, that the violence, you know, because everyone now is like drugged up on Prozac or Valium, or or, so you don't see like the outward violence that that you saw growing up in the cities. You know what I mean? Because everyone's on some kind of.
1: That's fabulous point. Amazing. Go ahead. Well,
0: it's, it's true. So you see a much more internal violence where people are at war with themselves versus the external violence that you would have seen in the 1950s and 60s in ghettos. So it's, it's just a very different, the, the whole situation is dramatically different. And I think that there hasn't really been leadership at all to really figure out what the hell is going to happen. So I, I hope, people see this film to make maybe make some light, bulb, light bulbs go off in people's head about what's really happening, you know, and um, I certainly don't claim to have all the answers, not even close. I think I'm just putting some information out there in a in a certain aesthetic and a, a certain way, and, and if it resonates with people, it does, and if it doesn't, it doesn't, you know. Well, but um, I think you, I think, without
1: a doubt, you are bringing, I mean, the thing that I'm hearing in my head, you know, that's just won't stop is is book, 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 but you know, you and I both. Uh, I feel anyway. I'm not going to speak for you, but I is somebody who, and, uh, you know, had has so disappointed in what commercial TV did, and I think that's one of the amazing um, transitions. Uh, talk about disruptive. What by the ability to put um, in everybody's hand, and I tell this to the inner city kids when I talk to them in schools. You have, in, in your hand is one of the most powerful cameras that ever existed in all of history. And so now everybody has the ability maybe not professionally it won't look like a professional job but everybody has the ability to voice uh, to to record the world as they see it and to record their opinions and their thoughts and send them out. Mm-hmm. And so it, it I have and I'm a big reader and but I see I mean I don't know if
0: I I don't know if I agree with that entirely. I mean I do in one sense that we do have the technological capacity now with individuals that we didn't, but I would also say there's a big downside to that, and that the systems that these videos are upload, uploaded to, and and and, and the this, this, this spaces where this communication happens between individual people is controlled by the biggest, you know, the largest. I mean, where we are, we are. I mean, there is definitely a good side to social media, and there is definitely a good side to the fact that we can communicate with each other. But I would also say that these communications are running across lines that are controlled by the most powerful corporations in, a, in, in the world. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think for a second that, um, like, real change, if that's what we want, is going to happen over, let's say, a Twitter or Facebook-type feed. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I just don't entirely buy that. Um, but I do agree, though, that, that when we have the capacity to, you know, take pictures and upload – I mean. There is definitely, obviously, something very powerful to that and very good to that. But I also think that there's a big, huge blind spot or dark side that a lot of people don't quite see in that the space that we're using to, to share this information is, is being 100% monitored and it's being downloaded and it's being tracked. I mean, you know, you saw the whole NSA thing. I mean, they, they have all this information is not like – it's not our information. You know it's saying? This is being stored in the cloud and, like, you know, so, which, which, I mean, you know, a part of me really doesn't care. You know, I mean, you know, you can have access to my, my stuff, whatever, but a part of me does because I think it just violates, you know, what a free society is actually all about. You know what I mean? So, um, that's kind of the one caveat that I would make to that statement that you just gave, not to interrupt you or anything like that. But well, no, I know, that I I totally
1: of, agree. That's the Achilles heel to all of this is that, yeah. And I, you know, that's one of the reasons that I have my own blog because I know too well some of the things I've posted on Facebook disappear. Okay. You know, yeah. and then well, I mean, it's, and it's totally arbitrary what they decide to cut. Yeah. You know? So, um, so I'm, I'm totally, and you're right. Once they decide, you know, they make it very clear that anything you upload is their property.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't even yeah. have a copyright on it. If you put it mm-hmm. up there first, Yeah. you know, so yeah. I totally see the Achilles heel and I think, but, you know, I kind of see it as an inter- interdependent thing that where would they be if there wasn't content, you know? Yeah, I well, mean, it's,
0: it's, <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, this, you know, to, to, to create the infrastructure to have that kind of space and storage where you, you can store, you know, a million of your own pictures on Facebook, this is incredibly expensive. So, you know, you, you look how, let say, Facebook has capitalized the billions of dollars that are invested in the company that really doesn't make that much money. You know what I mean? It's not like Facebook is right. like profitable. Here, you know, they're they're investing because the economy that we're in is in the process of dramatically changing. You know, we we are moving into like a a, a virtual economy, a hyper real economy, where that information one day will be worth a lot of money. You know?
1: Oh, because absolutely, and also, gets, yeah, right, in the fact that so many people are you, they know you know, that by giving it away, giving it away, giving it away, now, is leading, you know, if you read, I think I recommended uh, Vanderchuk's book to you, Crush It, I mean, the, the dollars, the advertising dollars are going to go where the, the eyes go, mm-hmm. and so, there, you're right, there's billions of dollars to be made in all of this, and that's why you know, the, the geniuses that created this stuff, you know, saw and felt that, and so yeah. I totally agree, but you know, here, look at what the ability of, the, of, of this communication to, t- to topple, you know, it is a double-edged sword. This communication to date has toppled whole um, political systems. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. look at in an Egypt and, and all of these other places.
0: But, I mean, um, even Egypt, though, it, it did, but it, it really didn't because a, a, a far more autocratic and, 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 and kind of like horrible government was put in place. You know what I mean? So, like, right. we, we as Americans don't even like it that to me was like such a funny thing in that we were like extolling Twitter as being like the savior of humanity. But we didn't realize that, you know, after Hosni um, Mubarak left, a worse guy came in. You mean a worse oh, yeah. guy well, came in? So, so, so what did Twitter do for that? So, I mean, I think there yeah. are limitations to what, this kind of technology could do. But to tie it back into Mission Hill, I mean, you know, it would have been great. I mean, none of these people at Mission Hill even had, had money to have video cameras, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. So there's like no footage at all of like, you know, I have a lot of old footage that I've been able to get my hands on, but in terms of just like street ball pickup games, there's none. You know what I mean? If I was making this film 20 years from now about the basketball culture today, I'd have a, a, a plethora. Of information oh, just based upon absolutely. the advancing technological capacity of a person, but I mean, you know, if you were in Mission Hill in, in 1980, you didn't have food. You didn't, never mind a video camera. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. So exactly, that, exactly. I mean, that, that's a perfect example of of how technology is improving. You know what I mean it is making life better, but we also have to be aware of the the downside to that. But um. I, I think in terms of Mission Hill, a lot of these things are interrelated, you know, technology, the city, and even basketball comes into place, um, and, um, and and how our society is being structured now. You know, we talked about last week about how, you know, childhood life is so organized and administered and, and you know, hyper-organized, I would say. And, and I think in Mission Hill, even though there was some organization to the basketball culture, it It really wasn't I mean there was a, I mean they used to use milk crates for for basketball hoops. they used to put them on the brick buildings and they used to play you know on grass you know like all day long ten hours a day in the summertime you know what i mean so i mean there there's some amazing stories of how these kids um back in the seventies eighties and even nineties you know, i mean I mean let's face it i mean mission hill in the mid nineties was was maybe the worst it's ever been you know i mean i I think the city kind of hit hit a down point in the mid nineties and then it kind of been moving upward ever, ever since then. But, I mean, you know, I was in high school um, in the mid to late 90s. And when I was in high school in Boston, you didn't go into Roxbury. I mean, you didn't go oh, into Boston. I mean, that, 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 was like a scary, that was a scary place. And now, you know, I, I walk along Parker Street and Mission Hill. I mean, I, all I see is young college girls walking around, young college kids walking around. I don't see any type of – you would never walk on Parker Street and Mission Hill in 2013. And ever think that there's danger lurking, or there ever was danger lurking? You would walk along Parker Street and see college kids. You know, you would exactly. walk around and, and see and see kids in Northeastern or Wentworth, or you know, even you know Harvard. Uh, the, if you get your masters at Harvard of Public Health, is, is right on Huntington Avenue. So you would see people like that. Um, you you really you know you might see a couple people from the projects. You know, because I mean. Basically, one half of the projects now, when you look at Mission Hill, it was always the, like, there was two sides to the project. There was Mission Main, which was essentially the first project that was built in 1941, which is behind the church. If you're coming from Parker on Tremont, it's the like, right, left side right. of Parker Street. And the right side would be the extension. That was built in 1952, I think. And mm-hmm. that those structures are still there. Those are still like bricks, you know what I mean? But the whole the whole original side of, of Mission Hill Mission May, I mean, it's like townhouses, you know, and there are a lot of low-income people. There there are still some low-income people that live there, but there, I mean, college kids live there now. I mean, no, it's just it's ironic that you have like college kids living in the projects. You know what I mean? Whereas (laughs) over on the other side, um, in the extension on the on the right side of Parker Street, you don't see that as much. It's still mostly low-income people, but I mean, it's I mean. That's changing as well. I mean, the whole dynamic of, of the neighborhood is really changing quickly. And when you look at the history of Mission Hill in 41, when Mission Maine was built, it was like almost 99% like, you know, white, Irish, maybe some Italian, mostly Irish, but some Italian families, Polish families. But it was, it was working families, you know, firemen, police officers, work for the Edison, work for, you know, work for the state, whatever, and Mission Extension. When it was built in 1952, was kind of almost from an, in its inception an integrated project, and then by the early 60s it became an all-black project. So you basically had in, in the mid-60s in Mission Hill, Mission Main all white, Parker Street separated, and then you had Mission Extension all black. And basically, all those white families just started, you know, getting out of there. And by you know the late 60s, early 70s, it was like you know 99% black in both projects. You know, so that's really – and that also, too, I think, is very different in Boston. I mean, you don't really see those those strong ethnic neighborhoods, those dividing lines. I mean, North End – take North End for an example. I mean, you know, no, no Italian people live in the North End anymore. You know I mean nope. they, 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 they have the stores along Hanover Street. But, I mean, North End is a totally gentrified, yuppie neighborhood. Um, and I think – and that's – you know, so, I mean – it's really when you look at Mission Hill and the basketball story, it really mirrors the other neighborhoods in Boston, South Boston, Charlestown, uh, North yep. End, of kind of what happened there as well. It's very yep. similar in in, yep. in many ways, you know.
1: Yep, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, there is a. It's the gentrification process. It's you know, it it, it, it it's night and day, because yeah, I again I lived there. I knew that not, I not only knew. Roxbury, but of course, because I traveled in Dudley Street and Mission, but I knew Jamaica Plain and I knew the South yeah. End, and I knew south boston and and it was it was endless that it was just you're right a low income all of the in the entire inner city was low income uh Beacon mm-hmm. Hill was like the only place yeah where that wasn't true, yeah. And, yep, uh, you know, it may be West Roxbury, you know, uh, there were certain places, but for the most part, that Where, was... The West Roxbury
0: is kind of like, more like upper middle class, but it it was never like wealthy. It was, it was kind of like, uh, right, exactly. kind of like you know, like, yeah, lace, lace curtain Irish, as they say.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you, you know, I think, um, well, I think, again, what, you, you know, I want to, I want to give a new label, I mean, you... You call this a documentary, but I suppose all docu- a, lot of docu- a lot of documentaries will give maybe more than just in an analysis, but it seems to me what you're doing is not only recording, you're not only documenting what happened and everything else, but you, you're, you're giving um, an analysis that gives a, thought, a thought-provoking. Uh, And that's the only term I can come up with right now, because some of the concepts you just came up with make people think. And do you emphasize those in the film?
0: Yeah, definitely. I I think that there's definitely the bookends of the film, the beginning and the end, don't have really anything to do with basketball, really. I mean, a little bit. But the beginning of the film is kind of like a history on on public housing in Boston, uh, Mission Hill specifically, um, how that happened. Like how you know, just the building of it, how it was what it was like uh, culturally and socially when it was first built, and then it gets into you know this massive movement of the black families from the south into Boston in the fifties and sixties that ended up coming to places like Mission Hill. You know, like the Turner family, their parents. You know, the mother's side was from Virginia, the father's side from Alabama, um, and how um, you know they ended up settling in places like Mission Hill. And then the the the, later, the middle part of the film deals with the development of the basketball culture, and, and the Turner brothers as kind of case studies as representation of the basketball culture. And the end of the film deals with more about the current state of Mission Hill and and kind of you know gent- yeah gentrification and and what's happening there now and and how sadly you know the the pride that the basketball gave that neighborhood is kind of not there anymore. And it's, so it is a commentary not only about Mission Hill, but also about, you know, the city in general, and not just Boston. I mean, this is, I think this is applicable to, you know, the the city itself, you know, what the city means in America. I mean, you know, ma- ma- even Manhattan in the 60s and 70s, this is, this is a place where, like, you know, artists would go there and live in cockroach-infested apartments and try to make it, you know what I mean? can't do right. that now in Manhattan. You know what I mean? You get to pay no. 3000 a month for a studio in Manhattan, you know? Right. So I, I think right. that, um, and even Brooklyn. I mean, you know, Williamsburg is like kind of like the new left bank. I mean, you know, you can't even get an apartment there. So may- maybe Bronx or the Queens will end up being like the next kind of haven for artists that want to make it in New York. But, you know, it's just a totally different... Um, it's a totally... The, the meaning of the city, what, it, what the city has traditionally meant for people, is in a process of major change, major change, you know? And, and, and I would and- argue... It, it, it's well, not I, for the better, it's for the
1: worse. No, I know. totally agree, because yeah. not, before there was a sense of neighborhood, sense of community, that is gone. That is dead, yeah. that is over, that yeah. there is no sense. Uh, you know, I, I you know, cynically call South Boston an, uh, an outside gym. Mm-hmm. It's an outside gym. There's nothing mm-hmm. but young people running all the time. And, you know, in the summertime, they're running in what looks like, you know, what would be the inside of a fighter's gym, you know. Yeah. And there's nothing attractive. Everything is, is 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 totally monosyllabic, you know, homogeneous. There's no individuality. There's nothing like
0: yeah
1: the expression that well, existed that, in the 60s. The th- yeah, I mean, that,
0: that's one of the things, too. I, I, I think there's a bigger message of, at least for me, in what gentrification really is. I mean, you know, when you look at, you know, let's say take a city for an example. Let's just take Boston for an example. When you look at um, what a local community is, what a local neighborhood is, I mean, they, in addition to being part of a city, they also have their own local culture and local community and local customs and local whatever. You know what I mean? And and 30 years ago, I mean, the North End, South Boston, I mean, these are very different places. You know what I mean? Even though they were a mile apart, they had their own specific culture. And and I think that. Anytime a local community has its own culture, it's very antagonistic to, you know, corporate influence. You know what I mean? Because they root in the community. They stay there for – it's like a generational thing. And they have their own businesses and their own kind of, you know, their own economies of scale, so on and so forth. And, you know, you see this in the south. when like, Walmart shows up to a a small town in the south. It just devastates – the whole, the whole town, like... Listen, the we're gonna,
1: they're going to shut us off, and it's going to be an abrupt shut-off. Like, we've got about, I don't know, like, they don't even show me the time after a little okay. while. So let's... Can we do another one? These are great. Yeah, yeah, we can
0: do another one. That, that sounds
1: good. Okay, thank you so much, Brian. Before they shut us off, and like I say, I, I hate even to...